2: Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, the finance editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show, how is Saudi Aramco faring in extreme conditions?
3: No one expected that their first year as a listed company would happen to be the most tumultuous year in the oil industry's history.
2: And America's $800 billion trucking industry faces hazards on the road ahead.
0: Before, you used to get paid for the wheels turning. Increasingly, you may get paid for more handling, customer service and things like that. So the job is really changing.
2: But first, it started with Huawei. Now it's TikTok and WeChat. Relations between America and China have fallen to a fresh low as President Donald Trump issued executive orders aiming to ban the popular Chinese apps over security concerns. But Chinese technology firms aren't America's only target. Mr Trump's administration has also outlined plans to delist other Chinese companies from American stock exchanges if they do not meet certain audit requirements. What could all this mean for the future of businesses operating in the two countries?
1: There have always been ups and downs in the business relationship between America and China since Coca-Cola became the first Western company to re-enter into communist China decades ago.
2: Vijay Vaitheeswaran is our US business editor and was formerly our China business editor.
1: However, the latest series of events in ratcheting of tensions between the two countries represents the greatest crisis in business for both American and Chinese companies in living memory.
2: President Trump has issued executive orders. What happens? Do these become
1: law? So while President Trump is president, they carry a great deal of weight. We are in a presidential election year, so we don't know what will happen, of course, in a few months. But as of January 20th, there may be a new president And there is a long history of new presidents overturning the executive orders of the previous president and undoing regulations or deregulatory efforts of the last president done in the last few months of their time in office. And so we have to wait and see. Should Donald Trump win a second term, we can be fairly confident that the vaguely worded executive orders are likely to be followed up with implementing rules and regulations.
2: And what if he doesn't? Do you think this would still represent a permanent shift in American policy towards China?
1: One argument is that, and this is something the American business community, which has a lot of value at risk in China as deep investments, long history, and a lot at risk, is hoping that if there were to be a change in administration post-election, that a Biden administration may implement policies that are more thought through. A lot of the things that President Trump has announced recently seem to be shooting from the hip. For example, one of the executive orders that was recently issued against Tencent, one of China's leading internet companies that makes an app called WeChat, that's the world's most popular social media messaging and e-commerce app, is very poorly worded. It's not clear, for example, whether the executive order only stops people in the United States or only Americans from using the American version of this app, which is called WeChat, or whether it would forbid American businesses operating on the mainland from using the local version of that app, which is called uh, Weixin, which is used by nearly a billion people. It's unclear, for example, whether this executive order is that sweeping, and it might be. A lot of this vagueness will be sorted out depending on who wins the next election. And the pundits are undecided whether a new administration will be able simply to wave a wand and get rid of policies that might be implemented that are strongly anti-China in the next few months during an election season, or whether there are enough anti-China sentiments now stirred up that Joe Biden will be bound to do more or less what Trump was doing anyway on Huawei, a 5G telecoms company that is in effect banned in America, thanks to Mr. Trump, on TikTok social media app that's not currently banned by executive order and so on, whether he'll feel constrained and therefore not have a lot of room to manoeuvre to open up on US-China business.
2: That's very interesting. And of course, the atmosphere towards Chinese apps is souring, not just in America, but in other countries as well. We've seen India, for example, banning them. How are all these actions going to affect the Chinese companies?
1: I think this is an important moment for Chinese companies that have global ambitions. The flurry of actions, really a blunderbuss of actions that the Trump administration is taking to try. try. Try to rein in the ambitions or to beat down the successes of Chinese companies that have gone global may well have lasting impacts that outlast this administration. We've seen, for example, France say that they're going to take action against TikTok, inspired by the Trump administration's rationale and reasoning. So I think we're going to see a number of countries around the world that might not have acted otherwise follow in the coattails of the Trump administration's arguments on security. And a number of these arguments are bogus, as we've argued on our pages. In the case of Huawei, the security concerns are not disclosed. There's no evidence of wrongdoing by Huawei, but Huawei has been banned in the U.S. nevertheless. On the back of these sorts of questionable and often nationalistic and protectionist arguments that have been used by the Trump administration that fly in the face of international norms on trade, on investment, on open markets that have been followed the last many decades, a number of other countries, I believe, will also begin to behave in this way towards Chinese companies. And unfortunately, it may usher in an era of national champions of anti-Chinese and anti-other countries' technologies as well. And that would be a, a bigger thy neighbors sort of world, which leaves everyone poorer.
2: And speaking of beggar thy neighbour, let's now turn to look at the potential impact on American companies. What do you think about the risk of either a consumer backlash in China or retaliation from the Chinese government and, and what that means for American business?
1: Well, first to set the scene, American business has hundreds of billions of dollars of assets invested in China. The Chinese market, despite a trade war started by President Trump and the hostility, is extremely profitable. For American companies. The latest data from the local chambers of commerce for American companies in China and surveys of American business shows that this year, despite the COVID crisis, a huge share of their global growth is coming from mainland China. Uh, that the number of companies planning to leave China is very small and growing smaller over time, not increasing. This is American companies again with their supply chain. And in this context, what you now have is actions by the administration that are politically driven, that is creating a, a very difficult political environment. Up to this point, the Chinese government has not retaliated against American companies. On the contrary, the reports from the ground are that the Chinese government has tried particularly hard to be nice to American companies, Courting them, the provincial governments are offering tax incentives. Uh, the top officials are asking, "What more do you need to stay here? What can we? How can we make you more comfortable? Would you like another pillow?" Uh, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but in effect, the reports from talking to CEOs on the ground is that the Chinese government is not the problem. Now, Chinese consumers at the moment, we are seeing uh, reports of quite a backlash on Chinese social media and in popular sentiment because of the TikTok and WeChat bans. They are feeling this as a a snub on their national champions. So there is rising anti-American sentiment among the consumers in China. The Chinese government has generally tamped down on this sentiment. They have good ways to control through their tools of censorship. But if the Trump administration's policies continue the next three months to grow ever more aggressive, the Chinese may not hold back.
2: Vijay, if you were going to give advice to executives of a company, perhaps an American one operating in China or a Chinese one operating in America, What would you say?
1: Keep your head down. Really, this is a moment uh, that is dominated by politics, as opposed to any kind of reason or rule of law or sense of mutual well-being, for example. And so at the moment, jingoism, nationalism is taking hold in corners of both countries. And this is not a basis for rational policy or for um, sound economic or business operations. And so this is a moment when Chinese companies have stopped trying to make investments in America. In effect, the investment flows are grinding to a halt because they know that they're not going to get approved by the congressional body uh, called CFIUS that's in charge of providing approvals or rejections for sensitive deals. So they've just stopped trying, for example. And similarly, American companies in China have a risk if they fly the American flag too proudly of encountering a backlash. So I would say keep your head down. An example is a company like Lenovo, which is uh, popular, indeed the number one maker of laptops in the world and, and personal computers, is found in most American offices. Most Americans would be shocked to learn that Lenovo is actually a Chinese company headquartered in Beijing. There may be a backlash, but with a name like Lenovo, it doesn't quite sound like Huawei. And I think so they've been able to fly under the radar.
2: So keep your head down and hope that economic interest wins out in the end.
1: I think that's the best hope for business on both sides.
2: Well, let's see where things are in a few months' time in that case. Vijay Vaitheeshwaran, thanks very much. Thank you. And for more analysis on the relationship between America and China, subscribe. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory offer. You can find the link in the show notes. That's economist.com slash podcast offer. Next. Saudi Aramco made a splash when it listed on the Saudi Stock Exchange late last year. The company raised a record $25.6 billion, making it the biggest IPO in history. But eight months into 2020, and things aren't looking so positive. The outbreak of the coronavirus has sent oil prices crashing. And with it, Aramco's earnings.
3: Aramco took a big hit. Its profits were down 73%, it reported this week. And so that is a very steep drop by anyone's measure. Charlotte Howard
2: is The Economist's energy and commodities editor.
3: But what's interesting about Aramco is that in the run-up to its listing, it made the argument that it would be the most resilient oil company on the planet in the face of regular oil cycle volatility, as well as long-term uncertainty about the future of the industry, given rising concern about climate change. The company knew that 2020 was going to be an unusual year. It was the first time its shares had been traded on public markets. They were going to have to adapt to all of the volatility that implied. But no one expected that their first year as a listed company would happen to be the most tumultuous year in the oil industry's history, both with the price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia that broke out in March. As well as, of course, this historic implosion of oil demand due to COVID 19.
2: But, Charlotte, this is a problem for lots of companies in the
3: energy industry. How has Aramco done compared to its peers? What's interesting is that thesis that Aramco had last year, that we're going to be the most resilient company through the cycle, has in many ways been borne out. It still can make a profit, even though there was a 73% drop in earnings. That's still better than no profit, which some of its peers reported. Its debt has gone up in part because it wanted to close this big acquisition of uh, SABIC, which is a state-owned petrochemical company, which it did close in June, um, but also because of its eagerness to continue to pay its dividend. So its debt has gone up, but it's still much lower than that of ExxonMobil or Royal Dutch Shell, its return on capital is more than five times that of ExxonMobil. So in many ways, that argument that it made to investors last year has been borne out. And what happens next? Is the company going to try to shore up that resilience even further? Well, it's had these plans, which it's been talking about for some time now, which include expanding into its downstream business Obviously, the investment in petrochemicals is going forward. It used to talk about becoming a big player in LNG. And then it had this big deal with Reliance, the Indian conglomerate, for an investment to take a stake in Reliance's petrochemicals business. And that is very much on the rocks. I'm not sure that the price that was agreed before the downturn is going to be the price that's paid in the end, or even if the deal will go forward. So that's a big question mark. So you do see Aramco reevaluating some parts of its strategy, But the central strength of the business is that it has huge amounts of oil that's very inexpensive to extract. It doesn't need to continue spending on exploration or big capital projects in order to maintain production levels. So that central strength remains.
2: And you mentioned, Charlotte, that Aramco was still intending to pay a dividend. Tell us about the calculation there and how it compares with other companies in the industry.
3: Aramco realized that in order to attract investors for its IPO, it needed to make a strong statement about its dividend. And so it said it would pay $75 billion dividend. The majority of that, of course, goes to the government. But it promised that investors would get their proportional share of that dividend, essentially no matter what happened in oil markets. At the time, some investors greeted that promise with a bit of a shrug because Aramco's dividend yield was actually lower than that of, many of, the, of, of all of the supermajors. But what's happened now is that you see the supermajors very much under strain and they're cutting their dividends and their long-term ability to maintain the dividend yield that they had in the past feels very uncertain. BP cut its dividend in half. And it has announced a pretty bold new strategy to move away from oil and gas to reduce investment in oil and gas and try to build its renewables business. So BP in the long term is really going to emerge as a different kind of company than it was before. And so I think that Aramco looks relatively more attractive than it did even in October in the run up to its IPO. The big question, of course, is, Saudi Arabia's fiscal reform, and whether Saudi Arabia can continue to lower its budgetary requirements to survive in an environment of lower price oil.
2: So Charlotte, you mentioned a price war between the Saudis and Russia earlier in the year, and there's since been an agreement to cut back supply. How does Aramco fit into this?
3: In two ways, it's been really interesting since March when relations between the Saudis and the Russians briefly devolved and they started this all-out battle for market share and started really ramping up production and driving the price down. One is that, of course, Aramco... Even though it's a listed company, very much its production levels are controlled by the state. But the other really interesting thing that happened is that it demonstrated that when Saudi Arabia wants to win market share, it can win market share. It's by far the lowest and biggest cost producer. It also illuminated why a really fierce battle for market share isn't particularly in Saudi Arabia's interests. Aramco loses money as the price of oil falls. They would rather sell a bit less oil, but at a higher price. And what's interesting now is that because listed oil companies in the West, um, whether it's American shale companies or the huge super majors such as Shell, BP, Exxon, they have really cut back their capital spending in ways that will have an impact on their long term oil production. And so even though this battle for market share between Saudi Arabia and Russia has in some ways subsided, you will see the big national oil companies, the big national state-owned oil companies, gradually, I think, win market share over time because investors aren't that interested in continuing to support Shell or BP's continued growth, big capital projects that are risky. And then you're left with the big state-owned companies, which have the political will to continue producing oil, as well as, in Aramco's case, the very low cost the economic rationale for continuing to do so. Charlotte Howard, thank you very much. Thank you.
2: And finally, in America, road freight revenues are almost $800 billion, about the same size as the world's airline industry. And all of that cargo needs people to deliver it, the truckers. There are about 3.5 million lorry drivers in America, and roughly the same amount in Europe, making trucking a jobs juggernaut. In fact, Henry Trix, one of our regular Money Talks guests and the economist Schumpeter columnist, once spent some time hauling goods across America.
4: The wheels that keep American goods moving resonate in music and in film. There is the celebrated romance of the road, the rugged independence of the truck driver. Well, enamored by this vision, when I was younger, I spent a year as a truck driver in the western United States. It was the 1980s and I was on a gap year after university. A friend offered me a job ferrying horses from California around Arizona, New Mexico and elsewhere in a lorry. I wasn't, of course, the genuine article. I took time off the road and I drove a complete rust bucket of a truck that was about 22 years old. I spent most of my time worrying about the brakes failing or the engine conking out. But I also spent lots of time in truck stops, I learned to savour awful American coffee, and I gave plenty of rides to hitchhikers. It was an amazing experience, especially for a young Brit who was kind of playing the American trucker. Well, today, a trucker's life is a lot tougher than we tend to imagine. And there are some treacherous bends in the road ahead.
0: Today, American truck drivers will spend weeks at a time covering huge swaths of the country. And it can be uh, exciting at times, and of course there is the allure of the open road as, as you experienced it.
4: Steve Veselli is a sociologist at the University of Pennsylvania. He was once a trucker himself while researching his book, The Big Rig, Trucking and the Decline of the American Dream. But the costs of being out on the
0: road can be tremendous to drivers, especially to their families.
4: So back in the 1950s to the, at least the 1970s, I think I'm right in saying that truckers were the best paid members of America's working class. Could you give a sense of how that changed? The industry went through serious deregulation at the end of the 1970s. What did that bring about?
0: From 1935 until 1980, the industry was regulated. And so What that meant was that you had to have a federal authority, as it was known, to move goods from one location to another. What that meant for drivers was that they were on a regular route. They were getting home at night. You know, if they had to stay out, probably put up in a motel room. They were also organized by the Teamsters Union, which at the time was the largest union in the United States. They were some of the best paid blue collar workers and certainly one of the most powerful unions in the United States. And. Deregulation changed all of that. It removed any requirement to have a specific license or authority to haul any particular good. So any truck essentially could haul any good anywhere. And that dramatically increased competition and put downward pressure on wages that really has lasted until this day.
4: There are several forces in America today that look as though they're poised to create another big shift in the sector, something like that of the 1980s deregulation. And I guess the most prominent one that we can see around us right now is e-commerce. How much would you say that is already changing life on the road?
0: Oh, it's changed it tremendously. So we've been seeing now for, you know, well over a decade, a declining length, average length of haul, as it's known. As we get into more e-commerce deliveries and last mile deliveries, as they're known, we're going to have more and more of that, you know, short haul, local driving, local delivery, and more contests, I think, over what you're getting paid for. Before you used to get paid for the wheels turning. Increasingly, you may get paid for more handling, customer service and things like that. So the job is really changing because of e-commerce.
4: Steve, you've written about the kind of technological changes that are affecting trucking, particularly autonomous driving. Could you talk to us about whether you see this as a threat to the industry or whether you see it as an opportunity?
0: I think it's an enormous opportunity for the industry. It's certainly a threat to drivers and to the quality of driving jobs. But I think for many of the long haul trucking companies in particular, it's going to solve their biggest problem, which has been the shortage of labor. So the industry, especially a lot of the large carriers, operate on high turnover which has a lot of costs to it. There's training, there's recruitment, there's safety. There are lots of things that, you know, become an additional cost when you move to cheaper labor. Self-driving trucks offer the possibility, of course, of removing that driver. The industry has also seen a steady decrease in productivity of assets as, you know, the hours of service rules and other regulations that keep them from driving more has slowly chipped away at the number of hours that these trucks are actually rolling during the day. So whether or not we see a truly driverless truck, um, in which obviously those labor costs, at least over that portion, will be largely eliminated, or we see a truck in which maybe the driver is still in there, but the truck is allowed to drive itself and that driver be perhaps off-duty and unpaid, we could see a major increase in productivity. From these trucks, even if the driver remains. And it may allow it to capture back some of the long distance freight that rail has pulled from trucks in recent
4: decades. But isn't there at the same time so many safety concerns? And isn't this such a, in a sense, a fairly risk averse industry suggesting that this may be kind of a long way off before we get driverless trucks? Or do you think it's coming sooner than we may expect?
0: Once we get beyond the the basic requirements of safety and be able to prove that, you know, the safety is really there, then I think policy is going to become even more contested and important. So you mentioned the railroads. I mean, that's a wonderful opportunity for the trucking industry, but for, you know, our road engineers and the departments of transportation that maintain those roads who are already looking at infrastructure that has not been adequately invested in and are concerned about repairing it. This is going to be a tremendous challenge to vulnerable communities whose air quality is impacted, to commuters who are, you know, traveling by interstate highway. All of these sorts of outcomes should be the concern of policy. And so policy is going to have to determine how this actually plays out because there's so many important things at stake with self-driving trucks.
4: The spectre of platoons of driverless lorries barrelling down highways like something out of Duel is probably some way off. But given the fact that truckers are such a big part of the cost of freight transport and autonomous driving could make the industry more efficient, it's probably inevitable that at some stage in the decades to come, trucking will change radically. But I'm afraid to say the romance of the open road may be a thing of the past.
2: Our thanks to Henry Tricks and to Steve Viselli. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Rachna Bogue. In London, this is The Economist.